So go ahead and open to 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to continue through um, our series through the book of 1 Samuel. Now, I have a simple idea for you this morning. And the simple idea is this, is that the gospel changes everything. Now, when I say that, oftentimes when we say things like that, part of the question is, well, what do you mean the gospel changes everything? What do you mean when you say the gospel? And when I say the gospel, really kind of what I'm trying to get at, well, the word gospel means news, right? Or we could say the good news or the story. I'm really talking about the work God has done in history, how his character has been revealed. His plan for the world has been revealed, one through Adam and then through Moses and ultimately through Christ, but then how his mercy has been revealed. And it's like hearing something, and once you hear it, you cannot unhear it. That's how the gospel is. The gospel literally changes everything. And I want to say that not only does it change everything, but I literally mean everything. The big things and the small things. It changes the way we wake up in the morning. You can have a small group with guys or a small group with ladies, and you're talking about how do I honor the Lord with my mornings, right? Just a small, particular moment of our lives, and we're asking, how does the gospel apply here? Or we can think big things. What career am I going to choose in life? What am I going to pursue? Should I get married to this person? Should I get divorced from this person? Right? Is anger okay? How do I raise my kids? And what we know is this, is that the gospel, God's work and what he's revealed about himself, affects all of these aspects of life. And it not only affects them, but it oftentimes even flips our perspective of what we think the right answer might be. It changes everything. And as we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, we're getting a glimpse of that again. Because we're going to see this guy, David, again, who's going to kind of be, you know, God's chosen person. He's a great example for us. And we're going to see how he responds to the Lord in difficulty and how in different lanes of his life, how the, how the gospel or kind of God's economy, God's uh, revealed nature to David, how it changes even those different avenues of life, Okay. So really, we're going to see three examples of how it changes three different areas of our life. But big picture, we understand it changes everything. There's this famous quote by Abraham Cooper. He's a Dutch theologian. And he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And so... As we're thinking of our lives, we're thinking of the different areas of our lives, we know that the gospel does, in fact, change everything. Okay, and we glimpse that through David's life. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to read 1 Samuel chapter 24 together and, and then study this passage and apply it to our lives. So, if you would, follow along as we read 1 Samuel chapter 24. In my Bible, it's titled, David Spares... Saul's life. That's what it says here. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward... David's heart was struck from him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. 
to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some men told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking those words Saul, to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, that the Lord, or by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And then David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray for a moment. Gracious Lord, God, we do thank you that we do, Lord, have, Lord, your Bible, your word before us. And I pray, Lord, that, Lord, that everyone in this room, including myself, Lord, that we would understand, Lord, the holiness, the righteousness, Lord, of your Bible, its truthfulness, and, Lord, its um, relevance to us, Lord, as your created people, as your church. God, I pray, Lord, that you would um, allow us, Lord, to understand your word this morning, that you, would, uh, that you would reveal, Lord, its interpretation to us, that we may um, not just understand the words, but understand its meaning. And then as well, Lord, that, that not only will we understand what's happening, Lord, in the life of David and Saul, or see, Lord, the, the, the theological picture of what's happening, Lord, that, that we ourselves, Lord, as men and women and boys and girls, Lord, that we as well, Lord, would, would see, Lord, the truth oozing from these words. See ways, Lord, in which, Lord, we have not stood up, Lord, to your righteous law. See in the ways, Lord, that we need the forgiveness and the love of Christ. And may, Lord, we, may, may we be encouraged, Lord, to glorify your name. May we be encouraged to turn away from our sins. And may we be encouraged to run hard after you. So, Lord, we do pray these things in your son Christ's name. Amen. Well, guys, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you remember what happened right before this, 
It was David being sought or being chased by uh, Saul. And right at the moment, it seems that David's somewhat cornered. Saul gets a report that the Philistines are causing a disturbance somewhere else. So then uh, Saul takes his army, flees away, and then we don't know what happens. We just presume that he was able to do the thing he was tasked to do, take care of the Philippians, or the, uh, the Philistines. But then in chapter 24, as if David has no opportunity to breathe or take rest, Saul is there again, knocking at David's door. And he's looking for him, and he has spies out in the countryside trying to find where are these hiding places that David has so that we can find him and seek him out. And of course, as we see, there comes a moment where Saul picks the wrong cave to go in, and the Bible says, relieve himself. Let's just say that that means exactly what you think it means, okay? And Saul goes in, and he looks for some sort of moment of privacy, moment to be alone. And in that particular cave is David and his men. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about luck or coincidence. And we know that in God's economy, there is no such thing as luck or coincidence. But that, in fact, the Lord had created a moment for David. But part of the big question is, what moment did he create for David? Did he create a moment for David to actually go and to kill Saul? Like, was this, this was, this was, you know, David's opportunity to finally kind of take hold of the kingdom? Or was it a moment created by God for something else? And David, I'm sure, is experiencing an immense amount of temptation because he's overwhelmed by sorrow and he's sensing the difficulty of being chased. Someone's chasing after me and now I have this opportunity to end it right now. If there's this part of David that knows that this is wrong to do. Maybe we'll look at that in a moment. And so David then decides not to do that. And so instead, we know that he clips off a piece of his robe the men he is with think, you're missing your opportunity, man. And your opportunity is moving away. Let us go. And what we know is that David restrains his men. And then after Saul finishes the things he was doing, he walks out of the cave, he makes some distance, and then David goes out to address him. And yet, what we're seeing from David is we're not seeing the thing that we think that he might do. We might think that he might kind of stand tall and point his finger at Saul and use his like moral authority to look down at Saul and just kind of demand or kind of create a moment of Saul's uh, embarrassment or uh, to really just make him look a fool in front of his men. But instead, that's not what David does. He goes there and he bows down and he uses words of respect and honor and then he tells him that I, I have made a commitment that I'm not going to harm you. And he kind of talks about the situation going on. And then in this particular moment, you think, okay, well, now we know what Saul's going to do. Saul's this evil guy, and then he's going to come back, and now this is his opportunity. He's going to finish what he started. But then Saul, for some reason, doesn't do that at all. Saul says, and he kind of just flips all of his cards before him and says, you know what? You're right, and I'm wrong and you are the true king. And then they both go their separate ways. And it says that David goes up to a stronghold, which means he was not trusting Saul at all. That's the passage that we have before us today. And we want to make some sense of it. And I mentioned that I believe this passage kind of flips, it, it, it flips everything on its head. David doesn't respond the way we think he should. His men, don't well, his men do respond the way we think they should. Saul doesn't respond the way we think he should. And I think we get a glimpse of what it's like to live under not man's economy, right? Like the way man would do things, but how to live under God's economy, how God would do things. And so I want to mention three ideas. And this is the first idea. And it's this. The gospel changes the way 
we view those in authority over us. Think about that. The gospel changes the way we view those in authority over us. We know in this moment that there is an immense temptation given to David. David already knows that he's been anointed as the king by Samuel. We know that Saul has abandoned his devotion to God and that God, in fact, has like, publicly rejected Saul from the kingdom. We know that Saul is sinfully pursuing after David and that David is a man of valor and a mighty soldier. So David had kind of the right reason, the right opportunity, and the right ability to actually kill and take care of Saul if he wanted to. But there was something that restrained him. There was something that kind of pulled David from doing the thing that I think we all just think he should have done. And I think one of the things, as we're thinking about this, is asking the question, well, why? Why did David not do this? It's because David was a man after God's own heart. And we realize kind of in this moment, you know, when David is kind of given this opportunity, we know that, okay, well, a man after God's own heart does not run after the opportunity before him because he's not thinking of himself. He's actually thinking of God and what God has for him. Right? So he's not thinking, what would be best for David? He's thinking, what would be right and God-glorifying? Think about that. Think of all the different situations that you have in your life. If you would even ask those questions, what am I going to do here? What would be best for me? What would be best for my family? Or would we ask the question, what would be right? What would be most God-glorifying for me to do? Because sometimes those answers might be two different types of answers. And so we see that David is a man after God's own heart, and he doesn't think what's best for him. He thinks what is right before the Lord. And then he goes and he cuts off his robe, as we know. Now, there's something kind of interesting about this. Like, why would David cut off his robe? Well, I mean, I think part of it is we kind of understand that, well, well, it's like, okay, well, here's a way to help prove to Saul that, um, that I had an opportunity, but it's like not hurting him, right? So he's, he's, he's in the room, and David's in the room, and he cuts a piece off, and so it's kind of like a level of proof that he has. But there's also this kind of interesting moment that happened earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, and I don't know how much David's aware of this moment, but there comes a moment in Saul's life where Saul, in fact, is, um, is kind of being chastised by Samuel. And Samuel's like convincing him and telling him, hey, listen, the Lord has rejected you, right? He's, he's like moved away from you. And then Saul runs after Samuel, and he kind of pulls on his robe and tears a piece of Samuel's robe. And then Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you, and he's given one of your neighbors to be king over Israel, a person who is better than you. Go back to chapter 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that range, and we kind of see a piece here. So in God's economy, David cuts off a corner of his robe because it has like immense significance to Saul. So that when Saul, when, when David runs out and confronts him and he sees the corner of his robe, he has in his mind this thing that happened between him and Samuel. It's kind of interesting, I think, at the very least. But there's more happening here as well. Not only is kind of David a man after God's own heart, and I think he's, he's thinking, okay, I want to do what is right, but David also realizes that the Lord has put people in authority over David, and that is no small thing for him. And so, look, let's go back here, back to verse 6. And he says, you know, so he kind of goes to do this, and he comes back with only this corner of Saul's robe. And then he, his men are kind of upset because he didn't do this thing. And then he says this, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing against my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is 
the Lord's anointed. And so then David not only kind of has this bent to do the right thing because he's a man after God's own heart, but also he's kind of bound by this command of God that he realizes that the Lord establishes and puts people in authority over us. And for David, that's not a small thing. That is, in fact, a big deal. And I think when we kind of think about authority figures, or we think about, you know, that God establishes people in authority over us, this takes us all the way back to the fifth commandment, which is the commandment that we would honor our father and our mother, and that if we do this, that our days may be long in the land by which the Lord, the God, has, has, has given us. So we have this kind of this rooted command in the Ten Commandments that we would kind of honor our mother and our father. But in big picture, this, this fifth commandment has always been understood to be something somewhat beyond, you know, beyond moms and dads, and to be something kind of like um, over, you know, not just for moms and dads, but for uh, civil authorities or for government authorities or maybe even for church and religious authorities. That we would, as a people, live lives kind of of submission and that we would honor the people over us. And so when we think of David kind of having this, this sense in which that he is bound to kind of honor um, Saul, we're asking, well, where does this come from? Well, I think it's rooted right here in the fifth commandment where David sees that. So this is his situation. He finds himself living under a bad authority, but he realizes that his submission to this authority is a God-honoring act. Okay? So I think, that's, I think that's a big deal and an important part. So David is living in a world where the king of the land is out to kill him, but he's also living in a world where God has commanded him that he should kind of submit to the rulers and the kings who are over him. And then so he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place figuring out, well, what do I do when the person I'm required or called to submit to is actually the one out to get me? And then what David kind of works in his own heart and his own mind, trying to be obedient before the Lord, is that even if the authority is a bad and an ungodly and unrighteous authority that does not remove my burden from submitting and honoring that particular authority. And then so we see David literally going over the top with the ways that he's willing to submit and to honor this bad authority over him. And so in verse 6, if you look with me, how does he refer to Saul, this horrendous and bad person in his life? He refers to Saul as my Lord, and he refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed recognizing that the, the Lord is the one who instills kings and people over him. How else does he refer to him? In verse 8, he calls him my Lord and my king. In verse 11, he calls him, get this, my father. And we're kind of stuck asking the question, how in the world does David do this? How in the world does David kind of have the, the, the gumption or the guts or the ability to stand and look the person who is pursuing him, trying to kill him, and, you know, trying to kill him and take his life away, and then stand and look at him and call him the Lord's anointed or my king and my God or even my father, these intimate words, I think, of relationship. And the only way that David is able to do this is he's recognizing that his submission to Saul is actually a submission to the person who is behind Saul, who's the king of the universe. And so when, when we're thinking about the way that we kind of interact with authorities in our life, you know, at times we just want to kind of reject those authorities. We want to push against those authorities. Um, we might have seen the bumper sticker that says uh, we should question authority. Or perhaps we kind of grew up um, at school in different environments and we're taught that, you know what, if, if you are able to oppress someone 
or bully that person, or that person's able to follow you, you're a leader and you're doing the things that you're called to do, right? Like you're being the strong person. But if you're the person who's being kind of taken over and you're being the person that's, that's having to submit, then in that situation, you're the weak person and you're a punk, we might say, all right? But in God's economy, this is not how things work. David's role is not to try to make Saul look terrible and bad by killing him and showing that he's the strong one. David's role and responsibility is actually, in the most craziest of ways, to submit and honor Saul even in his sin and even in his stupidity and even in all of the craziness that is true of Saul in that moment. Okay? That's the principle. The principle is that we realize whoever is in authority over us, whether it be in a nation, whether it be at a job, whether it be at a church, whether it be in a family, that we realize that we are put in that place by God, and the Lord is the one who has put those authority figures over us. Okay? Some examples. We recently kind of went through the Easter holiday, and we talked through uh, on Good Friday that moment when Jesus was crucified. And there is this really, like, important and interesting moment when Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate, Pilate is this guy who just seems like he is, I don't know, like, he, he's almost like a seeker of truth. And he has like this intellectual, theological conversation with Jesus. And he asks Jesus, what is truth? And then Jesus, they kind of go back and forth. And he goes out. And he's kind of hemming and hauling and not really wanting to turn Jesus over and to crucify him, what it looks like. But then Jesus isn't like really helping him either. He's not saying much. He's staying quiet. And there comes this moment when Pilate looks at Jesus and says to him, why are you staying quiet? Don't you know that I have the authority over you to set you free or to kill you? And then you know how Jesus responds? And it's this most like dramatic, powerful moment, but it tells us something about how the Lord works in the world. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you. Now, friends, this is a very hard thing to comprehend. Because we live in a world where we see a lot of ungodly leaders over us. And our temptation is to complain. Our temptation is to attack. This happens in marriages, right? If you only knew how my husband really was. If you only knew how my wife really was. This happens at work, right? where we talk about our bosses, and we're saying, that guy is such a joke, right? He just, the only idea he has are bad ideas. Like, if this was a competition for bad ideas, he would win every single time. We do this with local government. Our mayor is an idiot, right? We do this with our federal government, I either love my president or I hate my president, depending on what party they're a part of. And I'm either willing to praise them or to demean them, depending on where I find myself in any particular moment. But I think in God's economy, he's asking us to think about those in authority and power over us in a different way. One— I think he's asking us to understand that those in authority and power over us, whether it's in a family or at work or within a nation, that they're there because the Lord has ordered them to be there. Now, difficult to understand, but remember Jesus' words to Pilate. You would not have authority over me unless it was given to you. Okay? So David's living in that environment. He's living oppressed, He's living in an environment where the leader of the country has a personal vendetta to kill him. 
And I think in all of the ways that we think about this, we think that if there was ever a moment that a person was justified to take justice into his own hands, this would be the moment. And then we ask the question, what did David do? Now, I think David was tempted to take things into his own hand. If you look back at this particular passage, the men are whispering in his ear, here is the day of which the Lord said to you. Now, there is no other place in the Bible where the Lord says this to David. I think what the, the men here are doing are just saying, listen, you know, I'm, I'm not Einstein. I think that's exactly what they said. I'm not Einstein, okay? But I, but I can see a situation when it's in front of me. And one plus one equals two. And this is what this situation is kind of adding up to. This is your moment the Lord has given you that you would take this guy Saul and you would kill him. And it doesn't tell us how David responds. All it says is that David went to Saul, right? In verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose. So we're like, okay, is he going to do this? Like, is he going to take the knife and come down on Saul? And it says this, And David arose and stealthily cut off Saul's robe. And then afterward, he struck to the heart. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he says to his men, The Lord forbid me that I should do this against my Lord. In God's economy, we deal differently with those who are in authority over us, not because they deserve it. Does Saul deserve this type of honor and respect from David? No. But because David has a view that it is the Lord who puts people in places of authority. So when David says this and does this, he's not submitting himself to Saul. He's actually submitting himself to the Lord. Which brings us to another interesting point and idea here, okay? David knew where his trajectory was. His trajectory was going to be the king of Israel. David knew where he was in this particular moment, right? I'm being chased by this guy. He's trying to kill me. Now, how does he get from point A to point B? Well, David doesn't know that. And so when this moment arises, David sees the easy button, right? You guys remember Staples, the commercials? And they have the button, they used to sell them, you hit it, and it says, that was easy, okay? So David sees the easy button. He sees the way he can go from where he is to where the Lord promised him to be. And he has the temptation to hit the easy button, but the only thing it requires to do is for him to do something that he believes to be a sin. So there's a lot of ways that we can justify this. Well, the Lord promised this to me, and now he's kind of built this thing for me. So perhaps doing this dirty deed or this, this dirty thing is maybe just one of the costs of being a king of Israel. And so maybe I should do this, right? You guys see that temptation that he has? And in fact, when Jesus was in the desert being tempted, he was presented with the same exact temptation. Do you remember one of the things that the tempter with the devil tempted Jesus with? He put him in a high place, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. Now, what was true of the Messiah? Go back to Psalms chapter 2. The, the Lord says that he would give all of the governments and all of the lands to the Messiah as a heritage. And so the devil was going to Jesus the same way that this situation was presented to David and saying, remember that good end that you know is going to be yours? I'm going to give you a quicker way to get there. That's the temptation of David in this moment. But what does David say to that? He says, no. He says, no. And friends, we need to say no to. 
we need to love the law of God or love the Bible or love glorifying God more than we love doing what we think is best for us, right? Which means that sometimes we might make decisions, just like David did, that just seem utterly bizarre. That we would say no to just taking hold of the kingdom, no to killing our oppressor, and, and, uh, and it would just, and all my men, now I have to explain to them why I'm not going to do this. It makes no sense to him. All right? Friends, number two. It changes the way we view ourselves. You know, when I was in elementary school, there was a lot of posters on the wall that talked about self-esteem. Did you guys see those posters? And it seems that everyone was worried about children having low self-esteems, which I don't want to diminish, you know, that... That, that can be a problem. Sometimes we, we have negative thoughts about ourselves, and there's things the Bible says about that, right? That we are created in God's image. But what's interesting, though, is that the Bible does not present to us, right, like our primary problem that we have a low self-esteem problem. What the Bible presents is that we have an overinflated self-esteem problem. Our problem is not that we think too lowly of ourselves, it's that we think too highly of ourselves. So, this is the second idea. The gospel changes the way we view ourselves. Now, in this passage, I want us to make the observation of how David refers to himself and how he refers to Saul, right? We've already seen Saul. How does he refer to Saul? you know, the Lord's anointed, my father, my Lord, my king. How does David refer to himself? Go back to, go back to verse 12. Well, he's having this conversation with David, and he's kind of asking the question, why are you after me? And then in verse 14, he says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? This is reminiscent of something else that David did earlier on. In chapter 18, if you remember, and you can just flip there to look at it, uh, in a moment when David and Saul were still on talking terms, Saul offers David uh, one of his daughters. And then David responds, and this is in verse 23, if you're interested. And he says, basically, why do I get to have the king's daughter as a wife? And he says of himself, I'm a poor man and I have no reputation. So twice now, we see in chapter 18, and now we see in chapter 24, how does David think of himself? David has a very low view of himself. And it reminds me, it reminds me of what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with so sober judgment. So David is a person who has a low view of himself. Saul's a person who has a very high and inflated view of himself. And I, I want to submit to you that one of the instructions of the Bible to us is that we would have a low view of ourselves, okay? Now, I feel like I have to caveat that a bit. Our temptation is that we would think very highly of ourselves, right? I'm going to get the best job because I'm the best person for it. I'm better than everyone else in my class because I'm smarter, I'm better looking, I'm faster, I have whatever pedigree I think I might have. But the Bible, rather than kind of like focusing on these types of things, the Bible, rather, rather than view, viewing us in terms of kind of like what we bring to the table, it, it kind of just presents this idea that what you bring to the table is actually nothing. And it seems as if David has a clear view of that, that what David has brought to the table is nothing. Right? He sees himself, I'm a poor shepherd guy. 
I was like the youngest of my family. My brothers beat me up when I was younger. And even in the midst of all his successes, right? And he's had many, many successes. Even in the midst of those successes, he still carries this low view of himself, right? And I think what, what, what Paul would call this is a sober view, right? So I don't want you to think too high. I don't want you to think too low. I just want you to understand who you are before the Lord. And theologically, who are we before the Lord? We are people who have sinned against God. So this helps David, and I think it's going to help us, all right? If we are able to see ourselves the way the Bible sees us, the way God sees us, the way we actually are, right? Bankrupt. We don't offer, we don't offer anything to God that, that he should owe us a debt or a repayment. Like, we bring nothing to the table. When we're forgiven in Christ, we bring all the liabilities. Jesus brings all the assets. And when we're able to see ourselves for who we really are, everything that we have is a gift from God. But if you think of yourself in an inflated way, you spend your whole life thinking you're owed something. Why didn't that marriage work out the way I wanted it to? Why did I not get that promotion that that other guy got? Because you know what? I'm just as good or better than him. Why didn't I, why didn't I kind of work my whole life and finally get this nice house to retire and it seems as if I'm struggling and I'm struggling and I'm struggling, right? We can like go through all these different areas of our life and think of all the ways that we feel as, as if we've been shorted. But if we have that perspective that David has, which is a true perspective, then we say, Lord, I can't believe you've blessed me the way that you've blessed me that you've given me this family or that you've given me this place to work and earn money to support a household or that rather than just being lost and ignorant and arrogant and kind of just living my life for myself, that you've actually opened my eyes to to the Bible and the scriptures and rather than just being kind of blinded for the rest of my life, you've allowed me to see and I thank you for that. So, The gospel changes everything, and it changes the way we view ourselves because no longer do we have the opportunity to kind of be self-important or to inflate ourselves or to look down on other people. No, no. What we have in Christ is a clear view that we are broken. We bring nothing to the table, but a powerful and a mighty Savior has has saved us in spite of those realities, and we are grateful people. Who is David right now? a grateful person. Because he's a man after God's own heart. He's not after what's best for him. He's after what is good and what is right and what is God-glorifying. A third reality. The gospel changes the way we view our enemies. How are we taught to view our enemies? We're taught to hate them. When I was, I was like 14, 15 years old, before I had become a Christian, there was this weird homeschool kid in my Boy Scout troop, okay? You guys, all right, can we just say it? All right, a weird homeschool kid. We, we know lots of them in this church, okay? I have four of them, all right? Okay. And his family was this Christian family. It was one of the few actual Christian families that I knew. And they would wake up every morning at 6.30 in the morning, gather around the table, and they would do a Bible study together every single morning. And I thought, man, this is just a weird family, <laughs> okay? Their name was the, the Wingsinger family. You can look them up, okay? They're in, they're in no important book other than God's important book. But I saw this constant gospel witness through the wing, wing singers. Oh my goodness, it's been so long since I said their last name. And there was this one time this kid was being picked on by other kids in our Boy Scout troop, okay? And he's just being picked on, and he's being picked on. And, and at the time, I'm like, uh, I'm like uh, one of, like, this, like a, a, a scout leader. Like, I'm 14, but, you know, you know whatever. That was my role on this particular trip. 
and uh, I'm the senior patrol leader for this particular trip, and he's just being picked on. So then I'm the guy who has to kind of separate it, and in this moment, this kid tries to punch some of the other kids, right? And he starts, and it just looks pathetic because this is not his forte, all right? And then I separate it, and he's just mad, and all the other kids are walking away, and I'm like, guys, stop doing this thing. And then the boy starts crying to me. He starts crying, and I'm like, oh boy, you know, now I'm going to deal with this. And then I'm like, why are you crying? And um, he's like, uh, because I shouldn't have tried to punch them, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you should have, right? <laughs> like, you know, in, in my, in Jesse's economy as a 14 and a 15-year-old, I'm like, yeah, you should have done that, right? It was the right thing to do. These guys are pushing at you. They're picking on you. Yeah, at some point, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to look them in the eye, and you need to tap them in the face if that's what needs to be accomplished in this moment. Like, you know, don't be upset about that. And then he says this to me, and my unbelieving ears at 14 years old didn't know how to hear this. He says, he says, Jesus Christ died for my sins and has forgiven me. How can I not forgive these boys? I thought, I don't know how to respond to that. But those words stuck with me. Because somehow in God's economy, we respond differently to our enemies. And that's what Jesus did. On the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus do? He's like, you've heard it said, you know, and he's like, but I tell you, you know, if your enemy hits you, turn the other cheek. You know, do not hate your enemies, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, this is what, what we're called to do in God's economy. And I think we see that in this moment in David's life. We see David acting not in the world's wisdom, but acting in his own wisdom. And so he knows that the Lord has forbidden him to revile or to curse this particular king or this ruler. It's rooted in his law, and so he decides not to do it. But then David also knows this, and this is, this is important for us to understand, is that the Lord is a God of justice, and he will accomplish justice. But he does it on his own time, in his own way, and he's asked us not to be responsible for it, okay? So if someone is reviling you or hurting you or is your enemy, the demand on your life is to love and pray for that person. But then the Lord has given us two ways to accomplish justice. First, he's given us governments, right? Go back to Romans chapter 13, and we understand that, the, that, that governments hold the sword for a reason, right? And they're the ones who accomplish justice, though imperfectly here on earth. And then finally, the Lord has promised us that he will accomplish justice ultimately in the final day. So then what that does for us is it removes the burden for us to feel as if we need to be the judge and the avenger. So this is what David says in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. So how does the gospel change the way we view our enemies? It allows us to surrender our enemies unto the Lord. It also allows us to see our enemies in the way that we see ourselves, right? As someone in need of grace and mercy and the love of God. So, I'm going to end with three takeaways. The first takeaway is this. Do not reject the authorities the Lord has put in your life, but rather, and as Paul encourages Timothy, and therefore us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we would pray for them. Okay? What is your responsibility, you know, to the rulers and the authorities in your life from a, a government level? That you would pray for them? That you would ask the Lord to give them wisdom? That you would intercede for them? 
What is your responsibility to those in work over you? That you would not hate them, but that you would love them, that you would pray for them? What about in our families? Wives to husbands, husbands to wives? That we would allow ourselves not to run away from submission, but to seek the words of the Bible. Two, that we would seek humility and reject the temptation for pride. Friends, pride is knocking at your door. Every moment of your life, you're being encouraged to just be arrogant, to be proud, to, to, to say the thing you want to say to the person you want to say it to. And if you're too scared to say it in front of them, you'll certainly dream about it at home, right? But may the Lord kill pride in our lives, and may we be humble and not seek to exalt ourselves, but seek to exalt Christ. And we do this because this is what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus didn't assert himself and wasn't proud and arrogant. He had a lot to stand on and demand from us, but rather than demanding it from us, what he did was he was humble. And so we seek humility as well. And then finally, trust the Lord that he will make right all the wrongs you're seeing and all the wrongs you've experienced. So there will come a day when justice will be accomplished. There will come a day when righteousness will rule. And the only reason, from we understand from the scriptures, why the Lord has tarried, why he's waited, and why he's not returned, is because he's giving us an opportunity to repent and pursue him, and he's giving those who've yet to repent and pursue him the opportunity to do so for his glory. And we don't know why things happen the way they happen, but we know that the Lord will accomplish it, and we put our hope and our trust in that, and we do not and we will not take things into our own hand because that is not the thing the Lord has called us to do. The Lord has called us to trust him and to put our faith in him, and we do that. Now, if, if in this moment you've had a thought in your mind that, yeah, I think this is talking to me. Maybe you, you think your heart is far from the gospel. Maybe you know the words of the Bible, but your heart is far from the gospel. Then we say, okay, well, listen. Listen to the words of the Bible and stop hardening and callousing your mind and your heart to the words of Scripture and just believe it. Submit yourself to it. If you find that your love for the Bible and the things of Christ is faint, hate that, attempt to kill that, and run for Christ, lean on the Bible, and pursue Him. If, in fact, you think, you know what? I know for a fact that I, am not, I have never come to a point where I've submitted myself to Christ. Well, you know what the Bible says? Today is the day of salvation. The Lord has given you today to respond to Him, to believe in Him, to repent, say no to the things that you've been holding on to and pursuing, and run and cling to the things that are good. And he's given us that opportunity today. And I invite you to turn to Christ, to trust him, to turn away from the things you've been holding on to, turn and trust Jesus, and allow the gospel to flip over your life the same way it flipped over David's. And you know what? That will be a beautiful thing.